Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescents, ours and theirs. Vanessa, I'm so thrilled to be sharing this episode with our listeners because we are welcoming back one of our favorite guests. I mean, she's not just one of our favorite guests actually on the podcast. She's one of our favorite guests in our brain every single day because we invoke her and the science that she has done and her thinking and her language constantly. We are talking about the one and only Dr. Louise Greenspan, who I met way back when in my residency training at UCSF. She is still at UCSF. She's a professor and she works as a primary researcher, co-investigator on several studies across puberty. She has a wonderful book that was published in 2014 called The New Puberty with Juliana Deerdorf. And that is a book that we reference all the time on this podcast But she also has a series of studies that have been published that for those who are eager to understand the primary science behind a lot of the puberty studies, she is the person to look up. Can't wait for you to hear our conversation. Louise, it is so amazing to have you back on the podcast. We basically spend all day talking about you and thinking (laughs) about you and writing about you. and. I mean, not to sound creepy, I hope that doesn't sound too creepy, but like 
your work. And we invoke you every day. We Thank invoke you. you. Yes. <laughs> like, a you. De- like a deity, like a Bay uh-huh. Area deity. So for people who have not listened to our first episode with Dr. Louise Greenspan, what the hell have you been doing all this time? Because you need to listen <laughs> to that episode. So press pause, go back and listen to that episode and then prepare yourself for Louise's brilliance for episode number two. And Cara, do you want to kind of tee up what I know will be an amazing conversation? I do. Hi, Louise. Hi, nice to see you. So good to see you. Sorry, um, I should have started with just hi, but I launched it. <laughs> okay. It's It's because you're used to talking about Louise in the third person because we oh, do it God, all day, here. every day. Um, just always next to us in our imaginations. <laughs> literally, you're like, there's like a little angel on our shoulder and it's shaped like Louise. Um, okay, so it's amazing. You know, we were just saying before we pressed record that we've been struggling to schedule a time that we can all talk and that this conversation was supposed to happen several weeks ago and didn't. And how fortunate it is actually that this conversation is happening today because what we were planning to pester you about, Louise, is new data that is emerging about the onset of puberty in general, and the onset of menarche in particular, those two pieces are the things what we have been curious about, seeing if the ages of puberty and first period are continuing to roll back. We quote you often because on that first podcast episode, what you said and what I know to be true is kindergartners are not going to be in puberty. So we can be rest assured that that's not where we're going here. But just yesterday, a big study came out looking at the onset of puberty during the COVID pandemic. And so I think it's the perfect place to start. It was like the universe was aligned and waiting for us to speak. So can you just jump in and share information about the study and then we can start talking about all of it? Yeah, it's a study that was done out of Italy, and it was a very well-designed study. And you know that that's not something that often comes out of my mouth <laughs> when it comes to puberty. <laughs> Most puberty studies are not well-designed. The strength of this study is is really um, amazing because they looked at two comparison groups, one from 2016 to 2020, and one from 2020 to 2021, specifically the inflection point being March. And this is in Italy, which we may or may not remember, was the first place, one of the first places that had huge lockdowns, huge outbreak early on, especially in Northern Italy. And there had been some preliminary data coming out of Italy amongst other countries showing that there was an increase in the incidence of rapidly progressing puberty. But this study really shows that a little more strongly than the first papers that came out. And I think it'll be interesting to see what studies in other countries show. But they found that there was a slightly earlier age of onset, so a higher rate, earlier age, and a little bit more rapidity in the tempo of puberty. They don't have menarche or first period data yet, but they did find that there was an increase in the number of girls aged less than eight who had earlier onset of more advanced breast development. And just to clarify, a little bit of breast development at eight is normal, but once you start getting more advanced than that, it may show you're going more rapidly. And that's what this study showed. It was associated with higher body mass index, more time on electronic devices and less physical activity, which were all what was going on in 2020 to 2021. Yeah, so Louise, can you speak to, because we often 
explore the tension in the research between breast development that's attributed to just general weight gain and breast development that is pubertal breast development. Were they able to make a distinction in that particular study between those two kinds of breast development? From what I have read in the paper, I was not involved in the research and I haven't spoken with the researchers, but from what I've read in the paper, the puberty assessment was determined by the gold standard breast inspection and palpation, palpations when you feel. So this was actually done properly. And I have air quotes going because um, it was really done by trained medical providers doing pubertal staging. And that is a strength of the study. That usually accounts for obesity because trained medical providers can, when they palpate or feel, they know the difference between breast tissue versus just fatty tissue. And if listeners remember when Cara's talked about this in the past, Tanner, who created the Tanner stages that we still use as the sense of development of puberty, was not palpating. He was simply observing the children. And so that's actually a distinction. And Louise, to your point, that makes the study, we're not dismissing the importance of Tanner, but in the case of this study, it makes it a really valuable study because of the quality of the research. Is that an accurate? Yes. And to go further, they actually did blood tests. They did the blood tests that are very hard to get in other studies. They did the FSH and LH, which are the hormones from the brain that go down to the ovaries. And then they did the estradiol, which is the estrogen that comes out of the ovaries. And they did it in the morning. So that was a strength of the study that they looked at blood tests. They also looked at bone age x-rays. And bone ages are an x-ray of your hand, which can determine the growth potential and their standards, which we put them into. And they were all read by the same two people. They did pelvic ultrasounds. I mean, they did a lot in this study that was pretty impressive because to get that much data on a decent sized group is rare. I feel like no one had anywhere to go or anything to do. And people were like, oh, you can leave your house if you come to the hospital (laughs) and get your blood drawn and you get a, a hand film and an ultrasound. And kids are like, I'm there. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, if that is an, it's an incredible amount of data. I, I want to zoom in on one comment you made about the pacing of puberty. So, you know, we are a little bit of a one man band over here saying, yes, puberty is starting earlier, but it is not going any faster. In fact, it's probably going slower because the age of onset of puberty has sort of rolled back, if you will, by two to three years over you know the last couple of generations. Whereas the age of the first period, which is a nice middle marker of puberty is the way I think of it, the age of the first period has really not shifted that much at all, maybe by a few months, but certainly not years. And so the idea is that puberty is stretching like taffy and it is going slower. This data seems to suggest that maybe that statement is not entirely true. So can you talk a little bit about it with this study and then maybe generalize it a little to what you imagine we're going to see, not mid-peak pandemic, but just in the new world order? Yeah, I think you've summarized that very nicely. The data prior to the pandemic absolutely showed that puberty was probably increasing in duration, that it was starting earlier, but it wasn't ending any earlier. It wasn't going more rapidly, absolutely. And I think anecdotally, People in my specialty do feel like we're seeing girls that are having more rapidly progressive puberty and not always girls that were in the same categories, for example, BMI-wise. 
So we're seeing more girls who are not overweight who are progressing rapidly through puberty and maybe getting their periods early. But that's already slowing down. I'll tell you anecdotally, it feels like we're not getting as many of those. So I think we have this huge surge in 2021 and 22 of that phenomenon, but it's not continuing. So if we go forward, I think this was a pandemic-related phenomenon, and we can delve into what that was, but I don't think it's going to be persistent because it doesn't feel that way. Again, not by data, but with patients we're seeing in the clinic, with consults that we're getting, it's just not as common this year as it was the last two years. Okay. So let's delve. Like, Let's go to the why. And I know this is the biggest question you have gotten forever from your patients. Why, 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 why? And from the press and all the people who interview you, Terry Gross and others. Why? So we used to say the three whys were body mass index, environmental contaminants, and psychosocial stress. That was kind of our big three whys. So I think if I delve into those further, I think some are coming to more increased importance during this time and some less. I actually don't think like environmental chemicals changed that much during the pandemic. There was some thought like, ah, hand sanitizer. I'm like, no. And and those aren't the chemicals we think about. You know, we we worry about phthalates and bisphenol A and the persistent organophosphates, the flame retardants. Those did not increase during, so I think we can just, no, we're going to get rid of that for this scenario. Body mass index, yes, that probably did increase. Although I think a body mass index is having more of a longitudinal effect. And so I don't know how much gaining five pounds within six months and then kind of sitting at home would really affect your hormones that rapidly. So I'm not sure. Yes, everybody gained weight, but everybody gained weight. And so I think then we need to say, okay, of the people who gained weight, how many had rapid puberty and how many didn't? Because I think just a lot of people increased in size. And what we're seeing is when we get out of the pandemic, people are decreasing in size because they're getting back to their prior routines. And so I'm not sure that BMI per se was the problem. They compared the BMI between the pre-pandemic and the during-pandemic group. And they said, well, the during-pandemic group had a higher BMI. But what I'm saying is I bet a lot of the girls who didn't have puberty also had a higher BMI That's just right. because they were sitting right. around for so. So I'm not sure about BMI. So then let's go to stressors because or sort of other triggers. We do know that chronic psychosocial stress has been associated with earlier onset of menarche. We know that. We've known that for a long time. So you can look at that, for example, manifested in girls who did not grow up with their biological father and whether or not they feel stressed, their brain clearly knows that this man in the house is not their biological father. We don't know the mechanism, maybe pheromones, we don't know. There are other times that we know that chronic child abuse, for example, leads to earlier onset of puberty and menarche. So what is it that the brain is doing? We don't know. Evolutionarily, maybe it's having a an adaptation to say, I need to quickly reproduce fast because life may end soon. So we got to, you know, the selfish gene hypothesis would suggest that then reproduction is advanced and therefore you can create babies sooner. And then if you die from that stress, it's okay. So there is some idea that this chronic stress might be causing that. When we look at what was happening during the pandemic, even in kids whose families were not losing jobs, whose families didn't have death, Kids were in, suddenly subjected to a stress unlike any we have seen in, in a generation or maybe in humanity, where everybody was in that situation of being in their houses, only being on devices. Italy, they had very strict rules about leaving the house. So these were girls then with multiple exposures that were new. One is the stress. The other is all the screen time. What was that light doing to their brains? It was an effect on the pineal gland? What were they eating? Was it actually just lower quality food as well that may change the balance of some of their hormones metabolically. 
So I don't know that we know, but I think that if we see that it doesn't persist, which is, I think, what we're going to, I think we're going to be able to start narrowing down to what exposures were were the most um, likely cause. So, Louise, I want to ask two questions. Cara always accuses me of asking multiple questions at once, but that's yeah, because but I just she did inter- that. But that's because she interrupts me, and then I don't get a chance see? to ask it later. <laughs> I interrupted so you while you were saying she interrupts <laughs> me. Do you notice that? Yeah. But so I'm, I'm totally an interrupter as well, so I'm just really glad I'm keeping my Great. mouth shut. So, so I'm far, gonna, I'm going to dump all my questions on you, and then you can decide in what order you want to answer them quickly uh, before Cara b- before Cara interrupts you. Um, okay. So I have one question about the pineal gland, which until I started working with Cara, I referred to as the pineal gland. And apparently now I'm being schooled by both of you and the impact of blue light, because I wasn't sure if people were actually believing, if researchers and scientists were actually believing that could possibly be having an effect. So that's question number one. And question number two is, knowing that chronic stressors and not just, you know, adverse childhood experiences, but maybe some other new, as society changes, new stressors on kids, should we be doing more than we are? This is a leading question. Should we be doing more than we are to change kids' environment to help remove some of those stressors? And is that something that you yourself think about and are looking at in your research? That was 49 questions. Go. Ironically, the pineal gland is easy compared to what you, the second question. And the pineal (laughs) gland is a a mysterious (laughs) gland. And we don't really know the true triggers for puberty. There are genes that are now being discovered that we think are related to the timing of puberty. And we don't really know what the pineal gland does with puberty, but we think it's a modulator that maybe changes in the pineal gland then lead to changes in other parts of the brain, which lead the pituitary to start waking up, so to speak. That being said, the pineal gland is also susceptible to light. And so we don't know how those interact within the pineal gland, but you could say, well, it's all kind of part of the same neuron. So maybe there is an effect, we don't know. I think this will be a fascinating thing to answer, and maybe there'll be animal studies that we can look at or mouse models, but I think up until the pandemic, we all kind of blew that off, but now we're seeing this phenomenon. We have to figure out why, and obviously screen time is definitely one of the culprits that is possible, so we don't know. So I think the pineal gland is a gland that needs more research being done into it, and as there's more research into the genetic modulators of puberty, I think we'll find out where those genes have action, and then we'll find out what the pineal gland is doing and how that interacts with the neurons that detect the light. So what does that mean? And sort of going into that with the second question and just what we're talking about screens, it just goes back to the same thing that I've been saying for 10 years, which is if you can, now that we're back to being not locked down, try and minimize screen time. There's so many other downstream good effects of minimizing screen time. But if you can definitely, whatever your kid's watching, even if it's Moana or whatever, turn off the screens at least two hours before bed and just try and minimize the evening exposure because that's when your brain would really start being susceptible to the light that comes out of a screen that looks like it's midday on a summer's day. So so that being said, I don't know if that answers anything about the pineal because we don't really know what it does. You want to interrupt? Go ahead, Cara, interrupt. Uh, I do. Well, I was waiting till there was a pause in the conversation. So it wasn't technically an interruption. Just going to say, I think, yes, that answers that beautifully. I think the follow along question I had to Vanessa's question about things to modulate it at home and things to address this sort of chronic stressor. 
is that the word stress is used so broadly, right? And we talk about all the different ways it's used constantly on this podcast. So we talk about adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, and that is one set of very extreme stressors, whether it's, you know, witnessing or being a victim of violence, whether it's being unhoused, whether it's having tremendous emotional or social or financial challenges, whether it is, you know, that sort of, there are these very extreme stressors, extreme for everyone involved, including the kids. And we know those ACEs track with shifts in physical and emotional development. And then there's sort of the stress with the lowercase s being no less intense actually for some people, but the stressors of school performance, athletic performance, perfectionism, kids holding it together all day, every day so that they can, you know, be on the race to nowhere. You know, just because I say it's with a lowercase s is not to minimize it. It's just sort of, it's very different from the aces. But I guess my question is, is it biologically different? When we describe different types of stress, is that word a fair word to use to attribute to all of these things in terms of thinking about what the adrenal glands do and the cortisol rushes and all those other hormonal modulators that are floating around the body that we know interact with the sex hormone? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at bioptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think there is a spectrum. I think there's some stress that's good stress. You wake up in the morning, your cortisol needs to kick in so that you can actually stand up, keep your blood pressure up and mobilize glucose so you don't pass out. So that's a stressor, but that's a healthy stressor. If you have a math test, you want to be really wide awake. If you're doing a podcast, you want to be a little bit stressed enough so that you can speak articulately. If you're too lazy and half asleep, you're not going to be able to carry on a conversation. That is good stress. Where does good stress become low-grade chronic stress is a little bit hard to know. And I think it is the difference, like the race to nowhere. You talk about that. I have high schoolers, so I'm very kind of aware of that. Like, okay, if they're stressed because they have the AP test and they're stressed about that test for like a week or two, that's facilitated stress. But if they have a teacher that feels abusive and if they have a situation where it's not the right class for them and they're really stressed and they're, people are berating them for not getting A's so they're not going to get into you know the highly rejective college, whatever, then that can start becoming into a chronic stress. And we, for example, used to see this thing, well, we still see it, but we used to call it prep school amenorrhea. Do you remember that? Mm. That term, prep school amenorrhea was literally girls at, quote, prep schools, which in those days were the East Coast boarding schools, who did not get their periods because they were so stressed. And I see this in my practice. I see this at the very high achieving. There's a public school in San Francisco that's very, very stressful. There's some private schools. These prep schools, even though they're not technically prep schools, they're schools full of very high achieving kids. And there are girls who get their periods in June and July and August and then don't get it from September to May. And they have stress-induced amenorrhea or stress causing them not to get their periods. Where does that cross for each kid? It could be different. There's also girls at those schools that are thriving. So it's hard to know, but yes. So I think you have to know your kid and know like, is this a good way that they want to be in these environments where they are stressing themselves and they're achieving and they're competing against themselves? Or is it becoming something that's really, really negative? It's the same thing with food. So here's an example. Girls who decide they want to become vegetarian because they want to be healthy and they want to help the world But then is that really being a vegetarian or is that an excuse then to eliminate food groups and then they start starving themselves? And where does I want to eat healthy become an eating disorder? It's kind of a similar spectrum, unfortunately, because that's another way that you can stress the body out. And can you do us the favor of explaining the connection? We wrote about this in our book and I know it's correct because I sent you the chapter and you said, yes, it's correct. <laughs> so, so I feel really We confident. always check with Louise on we everything. Always, like really people, if you didn't believe that we really just <laughs> kiss the ground she walks on, but will you explain in your extraordinarily clear terms, what the connection is, what's happening inside the body when there's stress and where you think there is then a possible link between that stress and either the onset of puberty or the cessation of periods. You can take either path if you want. Yeah. So evolutionarily, our bodies are designed to maintain life and homeostasis and to reproduce. Like that's, again, the selfish gene hypothesis. So When there is stress, the body wants to maintain its basic resources first. So am I going to store nutrition to grow? And am I going to store nutrition to reproduce? Am I going to store nutrition to keep alive? So for example, for malnutrition or under eating, the body will preserve those calories just to stay alive before it gives calories for growth or reproduction. So as an adaptation to poor nutrition, then the body will shut off reproduction in a way to preserve just basic cellular function. So when it comes to stress, the same theory applies that when the body is stressed beyond what it can handle, then the body does want to preserve basic functions. So 
our bodies don't know the difference between a pandemic, starvation, abuse, like uh, fundamentally the pathways are still the same. So when you have that chronic stress that gets to the threshold that it's negative, the body perceives this evolutionarily as the same that our caveman brains did back, you know, millions of years ago, which is like, oh, we haven't had enough food. We need to kind of slow down everything. What's unnecessary that's happening in the body? Reproduction is unnecessary. Sometimes though, there may be the opposite trigger, which is, oh, we better reproduce fast so that we can push out more babies so they can survive and the human race can go on. And so there is this bimodal response actually to this stress. And we don't always understand why does some bodies shut down and not go through? And then why do some bodies do this speeding through reproduction to preserve humanity? So if people, if people weren't already like, oh my God, we're going to hell in a garbage fire. (laughs) That description of the pandemic, possibly, and also the state of our society and the pressure that we put kids under. And there are lots of adults who say, oh, no, 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 no. My kid puts themselves under that pressure. They're choosing that stress. It's not me. I'm here to call BS. And I'm also here to say that If your kid feels like the stress they're under is making them biologically feel like they are at risk for extinction, which is essentially what it boils down to, then we got to help our kids take some stuff off their plates and remove some of the stressors in their lives. So that is a PSA. That is not Louise's opinion. That is not Cara's opinion. That is my opinion as I'm flanked by two scientists about we got to help kids manage these stressors. And Louise, as you say, some kids thrive in it and they're fine and they're okay. And some kids don't. And we got we to gotta help them out. I'm curious, Louise, why or maybe how it is that if biology is set on a track, right? So there's increased stressors. There's other influences during the pandemic that may have caused kids to temporarily go into earlier puberty and possibly more rapid puberty. How is it that things recede? Is it just like the environmental factors? Do things recede? Are you optimistic that things will recede? Talk a little bit about that. So part of this involves bringing up a concept called the critical window of susceptibility. So I think it's not that it recedes necessarily once the process has started for the people who were exposed at that time, but childhood is a wonderful thing. We always have another group of kids coming along in that same age. So maybe the girls who were six and seven in 2020 and 2021 are the girls who were in that critical window for this exposure that then created more rapid puberty for that cohort. And they would have gotten earlier periods unless they get an intervention. So that cohort of kids born in 2014 or 15 or so, Mm -hmm. or right, right, right around there are the ones that maybe they are the ones that are most at risk. But now it's 2023 and we have a whole new group of six and seven year olds and they are not being exposed because they're back at school. They're back doing their activities. Summer camps are open. Families may be financially in a better situation. There may be less food insecurity and less housing insecurity for those girls then that group of girls is no longer going to be exposed during that critical window of susceptibility to the same thing that the, their their older sisters two or three years older were. So I think for those girls that were exposed, yes, things are different now and how can we help them? But that, that critical window may have triggered this process and so then we have to support them through that. 
But now that society's gone back, I, in, you know, to what it was, or at least quote normalizing, I don't think this new group is going to have the same exposures. So then it has sort of ended, if that makes sense. Well, and it also feels to me like, Vanessa, your track analogy is a good one, but I'm not sure it's exactly right because it's not a slope where once something starts, there's an absolute predictable amount of momentum that gets picked up over time. I mean, to that point, we've started the episode by talking about the fact that puberty starts earlier in this generation, but takes longer. So there are things that are getting thrown on the track that change the momentum. And this window of susceptibility that Louise has described may be the window to turning on the process, but I'm not sure, and Louise, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure we should be thinking about the path through puberty as one on-off switch. I think we should be thinking about it as a series of sequential on-off switches. Mm. And then if you view it that way, then it's, yes, you're on a path, but there are certain gating events that have to happen to get further and further down the path. And is that fair, Louise? Yeah, I think I think it is. I think we do think of puberty as an on-off switch, right? In terms of like pubertal changes. But then there are also phenomenon, phenomena. There are also phenomena. Phenomena. Oh, phenomena. They're like phenomena. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> phenomenon that suggests that there are this concept of different things along the way. For example, I see girls with what we call slowly progressive puberty or sputtering puberty, which is like they start and then they regress or they don't go on any further. And then like two years later, they go on a little bit more. Or we see girls that start puberty and then regress or go back a stage in their pubertal development. So there are things along the way that make changes. Like the disappearing breast bud, right? Yes, I mean, I think right. that's the perfect example. Right, exactly. Yeah. The Specifically the disappearing, the disappearing breast bud. Breast yes. bud. Yes. Somehow that Nancy Drew book never got written. You would, come, on, come on, guys, we can do it. it. The three of us, we can write that book. If anyone can write that book, Louise, it's, it's the three of us. <laughs> so, yeah, so disappearing breast buds do show or were there multiple triggers or was there a different trigger? It isn't an all or none phenomenon. Um, so for those people who did have girls who were in that group, you still can do things to change the downstream effects. So I think this is, you know, my soapbox is even if you have girls that are in that group that had rapid puberty during the pandemic, whether or not they needed an intervention with a specialist like myself, there are still things that you can do to keep them healthier. And so that goes back to things that we're all preaching all the time, right? Which is, I mean, age-appropriate clothing. I hate to sound like my grandmother, but like, you know, <laughs> dress them their age, not necessarily the way they look. Media exposure should be age-appropriate. Social influences and friends should be age-appropriate. We want to make sure that that kids are interacting in a way that is appropriate for their neurocognitive development, not their pubertal development. Right. Not the least of which reasons is that if they are put in situations that they're not ready for, they could end up being, you know, it's very dangerous in theory for them, right? So you just take, you know, you take the sort of social example. And if you put a 14-year-old in with a group of 17-year-olds, you know, that 14-year-old could end up doing things that they would not end up doing with their 14-year-old peers. Now, they could also end up doing those exact same things with their 14-year-old peers. So it's not a guarantee. It doesn't insulate them, but still. Yeah. No, exactly. And I, I I think my example is always the 10-year-old girl who's got a 14-year-old brother and the brother's friends come over and they think that the 10-year-old girl is the twin or something. And so, right. um, so I sort of, I tell my patients that age to uh, appropriate the annoying eye roll. Don't do that annoying eye roll and that... Oh, 
to your parents, do it to these people who come at you and like, dude, I'm 10. Like, right. like what, what are you thinking? And by the way, Louise, that is a really important point to role play with kids on how they respond when people treat them older than they are. I mean, the number of kids who we've talked to who look 16 and are 12 and giving them the language, the body language, the sort of chill, funny reactions to people who are trying to treat them older and helping them practice that because that is a really intimidating thing to do with a group of older kids. And sometimes it feels easier to just go along with it than it does to say, hey, I'm 12, dude, like back off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to change tracks for a moment because you have your own research going on, ongoing research. And I'm curious if there are aspects to your research. I'm not going to ask for like a spoiler alert or anything you can share, but are there things that you are seeing and noticing in your own research, in your own work that you could share with us about trends that you're noticing. One area in particular that we point out in the book and are very interested in is the lack of puberty research on Asian American kids and on kids who are of mixed race. And I'm wondering if there's any data that you could share with us about those two groups in particular or other research that has come up. So there were a couple questions in there. So I'll start with what I think was the first question. Um, I didn't say a word. You're on to me. You're on to me. (laughs) So it feels like we are seeing more girls with early menarche. So I, this study that came out on Thursday didn't show that, but I am curious what's happening. And I think we'll be looking into that as well. And it feels to me like the girls that are getting earlier first periods are not obese or not high BMI. So those are two things that I think we need to look at because it's not the same as in the past. As Cara said, it's one thing to start puberty earlier and have a longer taffy. I like that expression, taffy, like She's obsessed with it. I wanted to call our book Stretching Like Taffy and everyone's like, no. Everyone's like, no one's going to know what you're talking about. Thank you, Louise. Except Louise Greenspan. There you go. Um, That's all I so care I about. Think, I think what we have is the opposite. I think we had the shortening. So I do want to see uh, what's happening with menarche, what's happening with uh, to the girls that are not overweight, because that's a different uh, risk factor, different exposure. So that's one question. So I think that will be what people will be delving into. That's stake posted because that'll be coming out. There is a dearth of research in Asian Americans. Our study of puberty, which is now like, you know, 10 years old, was the only one. And in our group of 1,000 girls, we had uh, 44, I think, girls that were Asian American. There are studies in Asia, but not Asian American girls. So I think we do need to delve into that more because they do seem to have a different tempo and different pathways. So I think that's something we definitely need to look into. And mixed race data is also And mixed race data is also not great. I think um, more contemporary populations will have more. We, when we published our data and when data was published up until recently, they really, like you had to put people into a category. Mm. So for example, in our study, we had people from New York, Ohio, and the Bay Area. And so the concept of what counted as black versus Latino Mm -hmm. was really Mm -hmm. hard for the New York population because they had a lot of people who would have considered themselves to be both. And we segmented them in to one or other. And now I think that concept of multiracial, but then multiracial with what does matter? Like if kids who are of Asian ancestry go through later and the kids of Latino and African ancestry come in earlier, except not kids who are African, African, kids who are African American, like it gets really complicated. I think what that's just masking is social adversity because in our country, the people who suffer most social 
racial diversity tend to be people who are of Latino and African-American origin. So I won't get on that soapbox, but I think that what we're just masking there is social differentials. I don't necessarily think the ethnic part or the race part is what's important. So can you say more of that? Because Kaiser Permanente did come out with a study, a report on zip codes. So the study tied zip codes to onset of puberty and zip codes with higher rates of poverty and proximity to pollutants to earlier onset of puberty. Can you talk about that research? I I think that's what our, quote, ethnic uh, differentials are markers of. I actually don't think it's necessarily the different ethnicities that are so important, but what the people who live in certain environments are exposed to. And in America, because of historical racism and redlining, we have different exposures. So we know that living next to a freeway would expose you to different environmental contaminants, and that's a marker of just environmental exposures. Those kids who live next to the freeways may also go to a school where there's lead in the water, for example, which we've had in San Francisco in some of the schools, the water fountains. They may live in houses with different exposures. They may or may not be exposed to different poverty levels and food adversity and social adversity at home if their parents don't have financial security. They may be more stressed. They may not parent the same way. Like all of that is what's really important. And so when you delve into census codes and zip codes, you're actually getting way beyond the color of someone's skin into actually what is in their environment, in their built environment. Do they have a farmer's market or do they have fast food next door? And that's more important. I mean, teasing apart these threads is impossible, right? I mean, at a certain point, it's impossible. And so Sadly, the answer to many of the questions that people are desperate to get answers to, it's going to be, I don't know, for a while. But I think what what I'm hearing, and this is a very important through line, and it comes in the context of puberty, it comes in the context of tech and tech responsibility and time of tech, it comes in the context of education, it comes in all these, is we need to open our eyes as a society to the inequities in our world. And if we really truly want to solve certain issues, solving the question of why is puberty happening to increasingly young kids where, you know, in second grade, you're getting breast buds. One of the very important pieces is not just to look under our own roofs or inside our own refrigerators, but is to pull the lens way back and look at the social forces at play. And we talked a lot about stressors and we can categorize a lot of these forces as stressors, but then they get subsumed by this word stress, which I think then misses the main point. And the main point you are making, and I think is so critically important, is that these social factors, these inequities that we have chosen to accept and to live with are shifting the physical reality for kids. And I don't know, maybe it's too dramatic to draw a line between the study we started with about COVID and this much bigger statement, but it doesn't feel so hard to draw this connection. It feels to me like we have a social responsibility to look at the circumstances of all of the people who live in and around us. And if we really want to address problems, to address them not just on our own individual level, but also on a much bigger societal level. That's 100%. Well, no, 100%. You said it much more eloquently than I could have. I totally agree with you. And I think there is a direct connection between the exacerbation of everybody's um, exposures to stress, so to speak, whether we use capital S or lowercase s, we all had more of it during the pandemic. And some of us have gone back to more close to baseline and some haven't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Louise, I keep thinking about 
It feels like so many of us haven't really dealt with what we experienced in the pandemic. Like we're so happy to be past it and through it. And like, we've just put it in a box on a shelf high up in our closets. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we'll like deal with it someday. And I can't help but wonder if that's good and healthy and sometimes compartmentalization is important and we just have to like let it get dusty on that shelf or if there's some value in like unpacking and dealing with it for our kids' benefit and our own benefit. I mean, I know you're an endocrinologist and not a mental health professional, but I'm just curious because you understand the way all these forces interact, if you have a thought on that. This may or may not be relevant, but this makes me think about my grandmother who lived through the flu pandemic of 1918 and told me about it. And it was the only time anybody really told me anything about the flu pandemic. And her Mm. thing about the flu pandemic was that they were the only family that she knew of that didn't lose someone in that flu pandemic. And that's Mm. because her mom, my great-grandmother, made them all stay in bed when they got sick. Basically, they were on bed rest. And so some of the thoughts actually with that flu is that there was a secondary phenomenon like we see with COVID where you got this cytokine storm. So- I knew about that there was a flu pandemic in 1918, but how many other people heard stories? We, well, people of our age did have grandparents who were young enough. We, they didn't talk about it. Like there's no monuments to the great flu pandemic. There's no monuments to any pandemic. Mm. My relatives live in a part of London where apparently the lovely green grass is full of plague victims, but there's not a plaque anywhere. Oh my God, so the thing so is, dark. <laughs> pandemics happen. We will yeah. have another pandemic, maybe not in our lifetime, but our children and definitely our grandchildren will see another pandemic. And why is it that humanity never wants to talk about pandemics? Mm. So I think we're all very traumatized by it. I think we shut down. We became so antisocial or an asocial that it's hard to kind of draw on that because it mm-hmm. really went against everything we do normally for humanity to keep ourselves interactive with other people and to leave the house. And it felt very primal. And I think it is very interesting that we're not the first people who are shutting away this pandemic. So I'm actually, I'm not a therapist, as you said, I'd be interested. Why do humans do this? Why do we, why do we put monuments up to when people kill each other, but not when viruses kill us? Mm. Why are there war monuments? So I don't know, but I think, I think we do need to kind of think about what that did to us and the challenges and how we, some of us grew and some of us were challenged, but I, I, I think we do need to. I have literally never thought about that. It is such a good point. Do you want to hear something crazy? So my grandmother who died in the middle of the pandemic, not of COVID at nearly 101 years old was in utero during the flu pandemic. Mm -hmm. And she was asking scientists that we knew whether there was some way she could be helpful that Mm. her, like, I don't know, her DNA could somehow be helpful in the COVID. I mean, she's this incredibly brilliant, curious woman. But I'd never heard her talk about the flu pandemic until we were living through another pandemic. pandemic. And, you know, it brought up all, because she grew up hearing the stories or not hearing the stories as the case may have been. I don't know, Car. that's a question next time we have a mental health professional on here. Um, yeah. And then we'll we'll let Louise know what the answer <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, I'm. Well, you know, pandemics are part of humanity, yep. unfortunately. But why why do we not process them better? So interesting. It's remarkable. I mean, Louise, you are a font. <laughs> we could sit here and hang out with you forever. We are so grateful to you for not just for taking time to talk to us, but really for you have moved the needle. You and the folks that you work with your fellow researchers, I mean, your 
co-author Juliana. She's Juliana. amazing. She's, I mean, like you've, you guys have changed the game in terms of how people talk about the beginning of a very long journey. And, you know, we spend all day, every day, Vanessa and I do, talking about puberty and how great it is that everyone talks about it now. And people can say the word period and say the word penis and oh, yay, all this stuff is great. There are a handful of people who I believe have really shifted the conversation in a very fundamental way. And you are one of them. And so for that, we are so grateful. And please keep us informed about all the new data you have coming out. Share your opinions about studies that come out because we will go on to amplify those messages. You really, I mean, you've really, really helped people to understand how to look at a moment that is a coming of age moment in a very clinical and rational and thoughtful way. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for your kind words. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks, Louise. And I just want to say, sometimes the answer is, I don't know, or we don't know yet. And I I know that's uncomfortable for people and that's hard for people, but I so appreciate the way in which you will say, we don't know yet. And here's where we want to keep going. And it's a lot like caring through kids and puberty. Like half the time you don't know the answer and you're not sure where things are going. And you have to like, keep on keeping on as you live through the uncertainty without all the data. So we're just incredibly grateful. And we know our listeners are so grateful for everything you do. And maybe we should schedule your next visit now so that- (laughs) For a year and a half from now. (laughs) Yes. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you as always. And I think the work that you guys are doing is amazing to continue to spread the word that puberty is a healthy, normal process and we shouldn't be freaked out by it. Or if we are freaked out by it, to give people resources. Absolutely. Thank you, Louise. Thank you, Louise. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com. Yet. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of 
real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.